You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 83 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is alchemist John H. Reed III. John has over three decades of experience in study and actual practice in alchemy and spagyrics. He has lectured extensively on the subject, taught many classes and written two books. The most famous, I think, being Minor Opus, a.k.a. John Reed's course on practical alchemy. So thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, You're welcome, and thank you for having me. So can you explain to the listeners um, who you are and what your interests are, what you do? Uh, Well, my name is John H. Reed III. Uh, I've been studying and practicing alchemy, both practical and inner work, for 30-plus years. Uh, Currently, uh, I teach uh, practical alchemy classes and inner alchemy classes, um, both through uh, my second uh, website and store, redlionlabs.com. And um, on spajaria.com, I have all of my writings, and uh, I used to teach classes from there, but a lot of people who are new to alchemy could not pronounce spajaria or spagaria, <laughs> as it's said in Europe. And uh, so I decided to go with a different moniker, a different name, and Red Lion seemed apropos. And what is the red lion in alchemy terms? Well, red lion can mean various uh, things. Generally, it's um, speaking about an ingredient uh, that is derived from uh, metals. Um, When you first are making, using, say, the acetate path, and um, you condense down the uh, gum uh, or the liquid to a gum, it's green. And that's what they would call the green lion. But when you distill it, um, you get these different fractions. And one of the fractions is an oily red type of fraction. And um, that's what they call the red lion. It is just more robust than the uh, green fraction. It's sharper. Um, and it's more blood-like, and it's uh, just considered more mature. Of course, uh, other folk have different interpretations. What would be the symbolic interpretation of the red lion? Well, again, it it, it could be blood, um, or it, it is just um, the energy of the stone um, prepared for... Um, putrefaction you're you're you've separated out all the uh, components of um what you would actually use for making a philosophical mercury and you're ready to put those things back together and so now you have a very vital virile component that's very energetic and um it's part of what is going to allow the philosophical mercury to enter into a metal 
and cause a radical dissolution. And when that's done, it is said that one receives um, the fecundating principle, the germinative principle of the metal. And no other solvent is capable of doing that. Every other solvent delivers to you uh, something in a sterile form. It's dead. It's been, uh, it's been killed. But the um, philosophical mercury is able to cause this radical dissolution which turns the metal into, uh, for want of a better term, an oil. And that is the ferment that is used um, with other products to actually go and make the stove. I see. And you called uh, one of your websites uh, Spagiria, and, you know, it comes, I guess, from Spagirix. And but can you explain what is spagyrics? What, what you know? Because normally you hear alchemy and then you hear spagyrics. What's the relation and what's the difference? Or well, today a lot of people are trying to say that spagyrics and alchemy are synonymous. They're not. Uh, spagyrics is of Greek origin, supposedly coined by Paracelsus. It means to separate and to reunite. And of course, um, just to break a thing apart and then put it back together doesn't make much sense. So there's a third step called purification. Uh, Spagyrics is a manual method of working. Um, And in a very real sense, if you think about it, uh, to uh, take apart, um, purify, and recombine. If you look at the way a lot of um, the uh, modern herbal companies make their products where they're seeking to get active constituents out of the plant, they take the part of plant, they go after their their extraction method, um, favors the extraction of certain, a certain or certain, uh, a a number of active constituents. from the plant, they purify those, and then uh, they recombine it into a liquid or they put it with a full liquid extract. And so in a very broad sense, you could say that is a spagyric type of operation. It is all about laboratory methods and equipment. Uh, Fortunately, in the world of alchemy, we have a more defined definition for spagyrics, and part of that includes the... um, uh, the purificate the the acquiring and the uh, purification of the mineral salts from say a plant um, besides ethyl alcohol it's fixed sulfur and the volatile essential oils um, but again all of that is about manual um, laboratory methods and equipment and devices and procedures Whereas the philosophical mercury is able to do in spagyrics what spagyrics does without any external heat or device. It's simply you pour the liquid over it and it causes this radical dissolution. Whereas in spagyrics you have all these manual methods. And a point I like to make to people is that the philosophical mercury is not an alchemical product. It is a spagyric one. Um, And I say that because there's a saying or maxim in alchemy 
that goes to, uh, and I'm paraphrasing somewhat here, uh, no alchemical operation can be begun or brought to uh, perfect completion without our mercury. If that statement's true, then the philosophical mercury can't be alchemical, an alchemical product, because how would you be able to compound it to make it without having it in the first place? So you kind of have a closed loop. The philosophical mercury is made, uh, as the name implies, from a philosophical understanding and penetration about the subject matter that one is working with to such a degree that they're able to decompound it and put it back together so that it acts in a certain way. Um, and when it does that, you are then able to cause this radical dissolution that I've been speaking about. Why does it seem that plant, I mean, working with plants is uh, more connected to spagyrics or than working with minerals? Well, it, it shouldn't be, because if you scan, just, you know, go online and get a PDF of um, the Hermetic and Alchemical Writings of Paracelsus and search for the word spagyric or spagyric, S-P-A-G-Y-R-I-C. Um, you will see throughout his writings, the majority of what he's talking about spagyric are minerals. This is something that um, modern practitioners, um, to my angst, I, I don't agree with it, are trying to say that uh, plant alchemy is a spagyric uh, or spagyric work. And it, it simply is not. If you look at what most people do with um, plant work, um, for the spagyricists, they see it as, okay, my three essentials, I can I get from the plant in a sense that um, I'm going to do a steam distillation to get the volatile essential oil. Um, I'm then either going to ferment the plant to, to make an alcohol, but most of them would wind up adding a sugar, which is a no-no. Um, and then they're going to calcine the plant or incinerate the plant body, leach the salts, and then calcine it to um, get the purified mineral salts. And then they're going to put those three things back together. Well, the problem with that is, is that if you're combining an alkaline salt, because that's what the salt is pushed to, its state is changed, uh, it's pushed to an alkaline state, um, and you put an oil with it, you're you're making soap. <laughs> and I, I, to be honest, you know, I didn't realize this, and when I first started uh, my practice, but the whole reason for uh, portraying the three essentials in that manner is so that the mind has an anchor to grasp on early on in one's career. Uh, for the alchemists, they see things differently. It's it's more along the lines of the tree of life, where you have Kether, uh, Chakma, Bina as um, your three supernals, or the three omnipresent or very diffuse three essentials. Again, Kether being mercury, Chakma being sulfur, uh, Bina being salt. But you really can't handle those or use them. And then you come down and you, you have uh, Chesed, Jabrua, Netzach, and uh, Had 
these would represent your four elements, and the alchemist mixes those four elements in such a way as to produce the three essentials which are represented, three essentials that one can handle, or better put, that are vehicles or representations of, uh, or carriers of a force that uh, are the three essentials, and, and that would be uh, Tipereth, uh, Yasad, and Malkuth, respectively, for your sulfur, um, your mercury, and your earth. So how would, I mean, it's not often you, I mean, I come across where somebody who works with alchemy also uses the, you know, the Kabbalah. Um, well, I'm, I, I don't portray myself as a Kabbalist, um, but I have, I think that a person should have at least a rudimentary uh, understanding um, just for argument's sake, or, or or to show, if you think of Bina, um, it actually, and, and the interesting thing about Bina, or in alchemy, the mercury and the sulfur actually comes from the salt. Um, you know, if, you, if you're working with the mineral, or even if you're working with plants, I'm sorry, I need to close that program so it doesn't make that sound again. Uh, if you're working, the minerals from plants and the minerals that you, you know, it's the same minerals that have been here for billions of years. So they have a dynamic energy about them that is um, phenomenal if it's prepared properly. But before I go on to that, I'll get back to Bina. Um, so it's the bright uh, pregnant mother and the dark sterile mother. And so Bina has the ability to produce and to dissolve which is actually what, if you think about it, what the philosophical mercury does. And of course, it's associated with Saturn, which is lead, and uh, the acetate path is about that, but um, yeah, I'll just leave it there. No, I mean, I, mean I, I know many alchemists who are skilled or know the Kabbalistic words, but I mean, if you look at classical alchemical texts, you don't see it that much. Um, yeah, you don't. And um, this might be something that's um, a little more new. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not a, um, you know, a scholar of uh, Kabbalah. I, I learned from reading um, Frater Albertus's um, material. And um, I think that if one sits down and actually, actually contemplates uh, some of those things, you can get a lot of interesting information out of it. Um, because that small glyph can really give you um, an idea of how you're supposed to go about working and, and the different products that one is supposed to be able to get. Um, I have found it to be valuable in my understanding of some of the more uh, arcane or uh, hard to digest uh, parts of the work um, when you when you find those correlations and of course uh, it's going to speak to everyone somewhat differently but back to the the, the plant salts um, one should not think that okay the plant is just going to give me some potassium and magnesium or, or whatever uh, every 
plant has one or more of the seven metals or the salts of the seven metals of the ancients. And if you go to spajaria.com and click on the resource, there's actually a database of a few hundred plants, uh, uh, maybe a thousand or more plants in the, in the metals or salts of the seven metals of the ancients that one can get in the parts per million. And of course, that's all you need of parts per million um, because these are very energetic um, products. When one understands how to prepare the salt properly so that one can get an oil from it or what is actually termed a catalysate. You teach uh, practical alchemy courses and I guess spiritual alchemy courses as well. Yes. So how, how do, do, is it online or face-to-face, -face or how do you do this? Um, initially, the classes are done online uh, via Skype or GoToMeeting. Um, it's still mouth-to-ear. I mean, we're doing mouth-to-ear right now, and um, if uh, I'm doing the classes online, then um, generally there's a good back-and-forth and interaction uh, if everyone has good internet connections, then we have cameras and we can all see each other's body language and, and things like that. Um, my practical laboratory alchemy students get both the inner and the outer work together. Because if you're actually going to be making these products... You have to develop yourself internally or spiritually, basically just understanding yourself and the energies that go inside of you and, and reconciling those energies. And, and for persons, which are the majority of people who are not interested in, in lab work, um, I just do the inner work with them. Although I do have them make what are called your basic seven. Uh, products which are just very simple extracts and the whole reason behind that is so that we can see where a person what a person's inner state is like because your inner state your what you consider the outside world or your everyday experience is a reflection of what's going on inside of you and I've had many people come to me and say well you know I've done this before and on my own and, you know, big deal. Okay, just, you know, humor me. And invariably, they find that um, the herbs begin behaving differently. Um, something is not going to incinerate properly. Um, some things will just go to a light gray in a day's time. Other things you can have it on the fire for a week, and it's still almost black. And the funny thing is, is that they've worked with those herbs before, and they've never had those problems. And, you know, some will suck up uh, more menstruum than others and, you know, other issues. Um, but all of these things, sometimes when you calcine it, it it'll turn, the, the ash will turn different colors. All of these things are, are ways that I'm able to tell what a person's inner state is like. And the idea is not to do, do it perfectly. Everyone wants to do something perfectly. We're all works in progress. <clears throat> and in that regard, 
you need an accurate map of what's your inner state, what's going on inside of you, so that you can understand, well, what do I need to work on? Uh, one time in particular for myself, I was working on some rosemary, and uh, I was calcining it, the, uh, the fixed sulfur of the rosemary, and I had gotten the thing completely white except for one little spot of carbon. Try as hard as I could, I could not get that to go away until I realized that this was an interaction of the divine with my soul. And it was telling me to look at my heart and this, my pride, my humility. When I got to a point that I was able to reconcile that through meditation, the black spot went away. The outside is always a reflection of the inside. Always. And we create the very circumstance of our life, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, you are the author of that circumstance. Yeah, that story you just told is a perfect example of, for you, that was a normal event, but for somebody, you know, what you would call maybe a scientist or a average Joe, that would be a paranormal story. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, the, the, the thing about the inner work is that it is totally subjective. You, you cannot hook a person up to a, um, a device and say, okay, because you had that experience, this is what's occurring in the outside world. Um, but invariably, if one watches their thoughts they will see that the habitual mental habitation that they occupy day in and day out is reflected in their daily occurrences. And the interesting thing about the um, brain, there's a thing called the reticular formation. It's basically a filtering system, and it lets in our presupposed judgments about things, situations, people, the way life should happen. So it reinforces that perception. So it will only let in that which um, justifies or quantifies that which we have already presupposed. Um, it, it reinforces our, 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 for want of a better word, our prejudices, our prejudgments about life. And um, when one begins to realize that they have been the author of their life circumstance, and, and I don't mean to say that it's going to be a carbon copy, but you will see the similarity, the kinship, like looking at generations of a family. They don't look like carbon copies, but you can tell that, you know, that's someone's aunt or that's someone's cousin or you know, that's a sister or that's a parent. Uh, it's the same with these uh, occurrences that you go through in your daily life. You can see the similarity to your thought processes. And when you realize that, you realize that if I've been the author of that, then I can be the author of change. And what we do in inner reconciliation is begin to allow you first to explore your body, 
your feelings, which most people just ignore, um, and then start going into memories of um, past trauma. Because when we were born, um, we had to meet the approval of the tribe. And you can say the tribe first started as, you know, your parents. For a child, um, a mother smiling or showing a disapproving face was a mortal event. You've got to remember that the baby is completely dependent on the parent. It can't clean itself. It can't feed itself. And energetically, of course, all of this is happening pre-verbally. But energetically, the child can feel the approval or not. And this is all just the nervous system. You know, your nervous system has been evolving for billions and billions of years. It's been around the block more times than I have in my 54. So there's no way I can con it. I can't uh, outsmart it. The only thing I can do when going into these places that I had to hide because the tribe didn't find it, uh, find my uh, certain parts of my personality or my my character or my uh, my actions, uh, they they met it with disapproval. The nervous system said, "Oh, well, you know, I, I better not have this out." And of course. All of that has to do with safety in the first, um, uh, what is nowadays called chakras, but it would also be the inner star of Saturn or the metal of lead, um, your root chakra, as it were. And that all has to do with safety and also the physical world. But it, it's not just your physical body. It, it's about maintaining certain status quo. And so that's that's really why uh, the rules of the tribe, whether they be your family, your society, your church, are so impinging and have such a, an indelible effect on us because um, the tribe has to maintain its standards or else it loses its cohesiveness. And without cohesiveness, you know, the tribe falls apart and then everybody's vulnerable. And so um, there's the, the, the safety from the individual standpoint and safety to fitting into the tribe. And so your personal idi idiosyncrasies may not be appreciated. And so your system is going to say, I'm going to hide this because it's, it's um, you know, it, it feels that expressing it is detrimental. And so that gets put away and forgotten. And of course, that energy starts to become twisted and it, it, it seeks to come out because energy wants to move. That's, that's all it wants to do. And it's going to seek to come out. And when it can't, it's going to become twisted and then it, it shows itself in, in, in um, ways that are even less desirable, let's say. Um, but of course, you, you can't fake or fool the system. And the only thing that you can do is treat it with unconditional love and realize that's a part of you, a misshapen part because it's been hidden in a closet. In my case, you know, for 50 some odd years when I'm working on certain aspects of myself. But if you meet it as unconditional love with unconditional love, like a child 
you would find that's lost in a mall. You wouldn't walk up, you know, the kid is crying. You wouldn't pick it up and shake it. Where's your mom? You know, tell me right now. You'd sit the kid down. You'd stroke its hair, soothing voice. It's going to be okay. Tell me what's wrong. This is the same way that you have to meet these energies that are inside of you. Um, because again, the system has been around for billions of years. So if you come at it with hammer and chisel behind your back with the intent to alter it, fix it, or change it, it's simply going to put up a bulwark. Because ultimately, the system has hid that part of you, not to get rid of it, but to protect your original innocence, to protect you, to keep you pristine. And so until it realizes and it, 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 it believes that you were there to understand it and not cause it harm, it will always take a defensive attitude. But with unconditional love and being willing to sit down and reconcile that energy back into yourself, we're not trying to get rid of the shadow. The shadow is just as necessary as the light. It's all part of the day. So you could say that somebody who does practical laboratory alchemy, um, it's not really the product they are trying to make, you know, the end result. That's not the important thing. It's the actual process of making whatever is being made. Because often, especially online you can come across I mean it always seems that the end product is the goal but from what you're saying it seems you mean that actually working on the actual thing is is the per, is, is the point well y yes and no I mean there it's it, it's you, you can't separate them the it's a dependent arising um my working on the product, uh, on the matter, on the physical matter, um, is a meditative act for me. And the more that I'm able to connect with it, the more that I'm able to become the macrocosm to my product's microcosm, the more there's a synergy. It's a two-way street. It's, it's not, you know, they say, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, it was a dependent arising. They both arose because they both were needed. It's, no one comes first. And, and that's why I said that, you know, I teach my practical students the inner work because you can't just do the outer work. It, it has to be a tandem occurrence um, because as you, as I'm grinding, say, a plant or the mineral salts of a plant or, or, or an ore of a metal, I'm also working and loosening that energy inside of me. And the more that I grind it on the outside, the more it's being ground on the inside, which gives a feedback loop to the stuff on the outside and loosens it up. And it, it's always a two-way street. It's an exchange because actually there is no demarcation. You know, the, the original sin, sin being the word sin, meaning missing the mark, was all about, um, originally in Hebrew, it was an archery term, a term for archery. And it, it meant you missed the target. And it had to do with a, a perception, a, 
you know, um, a hand-eye coordination kind of thing. And, and so when you read the allegory of Genesis, um, the misperception became that God was out there somewhere or divinity was out there somewhere and that somehow I was devoid of it or that because I'm going through this, you know, thing of experiencing good and evil, that somehow I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy uh, of divinity. And, and that's just not true. Uh, in order to grow, in order to evolve, you, you have to experience and know both sides of the coin. Because you... you it's just like if, if I'm working with a salt from a plant and I want to get it pure, I've got to know what dirty is so that I know what clean is. I can't have one without the other. I have to have the experience of both so that I can judge how far away from or along the continuum I've moved from one pole to the next. And of course, the main thing is to cause a balancing of those energies because, uh, you know, uh, mercy is, is right astride on the tree of life from severity. And there's, there's no fixed thing of saying, okay, uh, I'm going to find a situation and, you know, every situation is going to require this amount of severity and this, this amount of mercy. Everything's moving. Everything's changing. And the only person who can decide how much severity or how much mercy that you're going to imbue any situation with is you. Uh, the ultimate responsibility is always uh, you. And, you know, hearing you speak, uh, you could always, you could interpret it as pra practicing alchemy is almost a religious experience. And, I'm sure it was for those old alchemists of history as well, which makes it a bit ironic that the church didn't like them so much, you know, if they were both going after the divine, I mean. Well, you know, the thing about alchemy, and this goes back to what I was saying about um, original sin and thinking that God is somewhere other than within me. I'm not saying that I am God, but if you, you look at, Alchemy teaches that life is in everything. Where there is life, there is God. Pure plant or divinity or, you know, whatever appellation you want to attach to it. Um, and so that meant that a person didn't need a priest. And, and that's where the fear came in, is that they were, you know, the alchemists were saying that you can achieve, you, you don't need any outside help. Salvation is, or illumination, is attainable by everything that you have within you, because if you really think about the word omnipresent, it doesn't mean seeing everything. It means being everywhere at once, physically present at once. Now, you know, a lot of people, so you mean he's on top of the atoms? No. Everywhere. We've got another word that we use for it. We call it matter. 
okay? Which means that everything that you see, smell, taste, touch, and I mean everything, is God. From those guys over in the Middle East cutting off heads, you know, to to doctors without borders going into um, Ebola zones and, and seeking to cure. They are all expressions of the one. And alchemy on the um, Emerald Tablet, and again, I'm paraphrasing, it says, all, all is one, all comes from one and arises from one through the adaptation of the one. And the Kabbalan, Kabbalan, the, uh, the first statement is, all is mental, the universe is mind. You know, you, you, you can't say that, oh, okay, you know, this stuff that I agree with over here is part of the one, but that, that stuff that I don't like over there, well, that's, that can't be part of the one. Well, if it's not, then you've just given it its own power and jurisdiction outside of God. And it, and it becomes God's equivalent, which it actually is. In a roundabout way, you're still getting to the central point that there's all one power and it's all equal. And that the illusion of duality is what causes our pain our misperception, our sin of thinking that there is a duality. There isn't. There's only one truth. And so for the alchemist, it actually becomes, the day becomes a walking meditation. And I, I wouldn't call this a religion as more as a philosophy of life in which you're seeking to remove resistance from that which is. Because if it's, if it's here, it was meant to be. Now, this doesn't mean that one is falling down into acquiescence. Well, there's nothing I can do to make things, quote unquote, better. And I say that in quotes because, you know, time isn't linear like we think it is. It's, it's, there's... Each thing contains within it the seed of one-upmanship, the seed of moving up a spiral, and yet it's all just one spiral, but it's ever moving upward. And when you see a certain thing happening, it doesn't mean that you have to acquiesce to it, but you do have to accept it. You know, it's just like, Suffering comes from not accepting things as they are. So I'm driving down the road and the guy is in front of me and he's going slow, 20 kilometers slower than what he should be going or 20 miles per hour slower than what he should be going. You feel a frustration in you. You have that frustration because you're not accepting that person driving at that speed, being in that lane in front of you. If you did not have the thought, I wish this person were going faster, you would not have the suffering that you do about his speed. Alchemy is about removal of resistance. The more you can remove your resistance to that which is, the more you allow the life energy 
the mercury to flow through you. And mercury represents spirit or life. And so spirituality and morality are not the same thing. Spirituality is the adroitness with which one allows the life force to flow through them to accomplish whatever it is that they're doing in this so-called mundane world, which is not mundane, it's all spiritual. There is a spirituality to everything, from being a doctor, to being a painter, to being a garbage man. Now, usually when I say that to people, they look at me and say, there's no spirituality to being a garbage man. To which I say, of course there is. And all I have to do is change one word and you'll understand what I mean. If I say there's a Zen to being a garbage man, all of a sudden the light bulbs go off. And you can tell if your garbage man, the guy who comes to pick it up has Zen. Does he just throw the garbage can after he's emptied it? So it's just, you know, laying in a street or, you know, put sloppily in your driveway? Or it, does he put it back as he got it? Now, that might seem trite to some people, you know, inconsequential. But the fact of the matter is that that man is showing his dignity. Because dignity does not come from what you do. It comes from within. And his placing of the garbage can is no different than the adroitness that Picasso used to draw a perfect freehand circle. It's all the way we express ourselves. Now, morality is a completely different thing. And usually it's simply based on, quote unquote, what the tribe accepts. A few hundred years ago here in the Americas, the uh, Mayas, Mayan people, had human sacrifice and everybody accepted it. It was just great. Now, we would say that that was morally repugnant, but their spirituality allowed them to create a calendar and see cycles and predict positions of planets that affected us in this modern age, if everyone remembers 2012. So, again, spirituality and morality are not the same things. Morality should come from having a deep conversation and understanding with oneself. Where you know where your boundaries are, what you will accept and what you will not accept. Because a lot of times what's happening in society, the societal morality, doesn't mean that it's just. I would also say that for me anyway if you call alchemy a sort of philosophy I would I see it a bit as an anarchistic philosophy and I mean anarchy if some people might view anarchy as a violent political movement but uh, they, I, those people have misunderstood it I think it's more about individuality and taking charge of your own life and uh, taking responsibility over what you do, which is similar to what you just said. Um, Yeah. I mean, you, you look at education here in the United States. When I was growing up, a liberal arts education was just standard, man. You know, you got to introduce to the arts, 
arts of literature, music. You know, we were reading Greek mythology in, in grade school and in junior high. And, and all these different disciplines allowed you to flower as a human being. Steve Jobs, you know, guy didn't know what he wanted to do. But the reason why we have all the different fonts and the computers that we have now is because he took a calligraphy class. He wouldn't have gotten, we wouldn't have had that at least not as early on as we did, had he just, you know, been an MBA student. You, 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 the, the anarchy, and, and, and this is, this is, gets back to the inner alchemy thing. Your idiosyncrasies, or what we call your idiosyncrasies or eccentricities, are what make you unique. They're, they're how you see the world and you operate through it. And we need that. Nature, God, is in the business of variety. It strengthens the species. The more we're homogeneous, the more we're liable to be wiped out by a single pathogen, a single pandemic. But if we have diversity, then there's strength in the gene pool. And that's also where the creativity comes from. If everybody's thinking the same, operating the same, you have no creators. You know, all you get is this vanilla sameness and nothing changes. So, yeah, if you want to call it an anarchy, it's an anarchy of the soul and, and a liberation of the soul. And, and that's, I think, what's starting to happen um, when you start seeing um, so many jobs and things being sent overseas. I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as a call to individuals to begin creating their own reality, finding their passion in doing it. I like to ask people, you know, what's your heart's desire? If you had all the money that you needed in order to live comfortably and whatever comfortably is for you, and you had all the things that you needed, whatever it is that you think it is that you need, from cars to house to, you know, food and just the whole nine yards, you just did not have to think about that. What would be the thing that got you out of bed in the morning that you would do just for the joy of being able to create it? What is that thing? 90% plus of the people I asked that question to have no answer. They have just become automatons. Okay, well, you know, I go to my job. It's not what I like to do. When we had Superstorm Sandy here in New York, and this was a few years ago, I found it very interesting. The power was out all over New York. So not even the gas stations or the grocery stores 
you, you, you couldn't get gas to get to work. And so people were missing work. When you finally were able to go to the gas station and fill up your car, I found it amazing that people were actually willing to fight to get that gas so they could go to a job that they hated. <laughs> Isn't that uh, the comfort of, uh, uh, what's it called, like regular habit of habit? Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, is that you need, in order to grow, to always be challenged, to step out of your comfort zone. You know, a lot of times when people start doing inner work and I have them doing what I call the heart's desire ritual is, is finding their passion and then going about doing it. Invariably, what happens is things start happening that seem to be going against what it is that they have for their vision. It seems like it's thwarting them. It's, it's, it's in their way. It's an obstacle. I tell them these are not obstacles. These are gifts. They're presents. And what they're doing is making you stronger. They're causing you to reach down and find something in yourself that is greater than what you understand, what you believe you have at the moment, and causing you to rise above it. It is actually the universe conspiring to help you achieve what it is that you want to have. But you see, whenever you're going to change something, whenever you're going to move to a new reality, most people think, well, you know, I want a million dollars. Well, you're not going to be the same guy that you are now if you want that million dollars. If it were so, you'd have the million dollars already. You get my drift. So something about you has to change. You're, you're, you're not going to say stay the same person. And that's what those supposed obstacles help you to do, is change. There is only one life. And it is benign when you understand it. It gives us exactly what we need, even when it seems like it's the most distasteful thing that we've experienced. Well, it's uh, very interesting to talk to you, uh, and if uh, people, but if people want to know more about your things, how can they like order a course, or how can they come in contact with you and your your work? Well, um, they can write me at um, uh, redlion at redlionlabs.com. I will of course send you. That information, they can go to the Red Lion Labs, L-A-B-S dot com website. They can read about what we call alchemical inner reconciliation, or AIR for short, A-I-R. They can also order products um, at the Red Lion Labs store, uh, redlionlabs.com forward slash store. And, of course, um, they can read all the various articles and things that I've written at the Spajaria.com website. And, again, I will send you um, those URLs and, and uh, email 
so you can uh, share them with your listeners. That's great. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you, and I hope we can do it again in the future. Um, I am always available. Uh, I love speaking about alchemy. And so uh, anytime you want to, just uh, give me a holler. Go to spagiria.com or redlionlabs.com to check out more of John Reed III's work. I will post all the links in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. Now we are going to listen to a musical act called Words Have Edges. The track is called A Practice in Simplicity and is taken from the self-titled album Words Have Edges. Go to wordshaveedges.bandcamp.com to check out more. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter and uh, I'll see you all next week. Freedom is in the mind. Thank you.